Hi, everyone. Welcome to this very special episode of the History of Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode is dedicated to teaching with historical video games, specifically Twine games. For those of you who don't know, Twine is a development tool that allows users to create text-based adventure games. The software is free to install and use, and is very user-friendly. I recently used Twine as the basis for the final project assignment in my historical video games course, Playing the Past, and the student-made Twine games from that course are now available for play on HistoryRespawn.com. I recently posted a debrief about my experience teaching with Twine on HistoryRespawn.com in order to work out what went right and what went wrong with the first iteration of that course. I thought it might be useful to have a podcast on the subject of Twine and historical games courses more generally in order to begin to determine some best practices going forward. To that end, I'm joined on today's show by two experienced historical game instructors. The first is my friend and co-host on History Respond, John Harney. Hey, John. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, John teaches a course at Center College in Kentucky that's very similar to my Playing the Past course, and he's gearing up to teach that course again in January. In addition to John, we are joined today by Jeremiah McCall. Jeremiah is a high school instructor at Cincinnati Country Day School and is a leading expert on the use of historical simulation games in history education. Jeremiah is the author of Gaming the Past, Using Video Games to Teach Secondary History, which was published by Rutledge in 2011. He's currently in the midst of development on a twine-based game called Path of Honors, set in ancient Rome. Jeremiah, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. So, Jeremiah, I thought we might start with you, uh, and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your past experience with teaching with video games, as well as your current project, Path of Honors. Sure. Well, I, I, um, I went through grad school like, uh, like you two gentlemen did. Um, uh, my training was in... in Condolences. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, lived, I lived to tell the tale. Um, so, my training is in ancient history and Roman history in particular. Um, so I, I sort of thought a little bit while I was teaching college classes whether I might make the classroom more interactive. Um, at the time I was graduating, uh, it probably was the way for you to uh, also, right? They just sort of throw you in a classroom and say, you've completed your <laughs> exam, so go teach it. Yeah, um, and, yeah pretty much. You, you're a history teacher now. Yeah. <laughs> you are now qualified to profess. Um, so... Uh, what I was I was trying to do even back then was to come up with some more kind of active and engaging ways uh, to get the students into history. Um, and I uh, went into high school teaching. Uh, it turned out to be really my passion and, and the place I want to be. And I continued to sort of think about ways that I could make history become more interactive and engaging. Um, and, th and then I think the combination was that I've been a video gamer since the early 80s. Um, and so I had played, it was Civilization 3, I think, at that point. Actually, I don't think I'd played Civilization 3. I think I had stopped with 2. But Civilization 3 came out, and I said to myself, wow, you know, this would be really good um, in a classroom. Um, it's got a lot of interesting historical details. Um, so I tried it out at a senior elective I taught here, oh gosh, it must have been 10, 12 years ago, um, on historical simulation design. Um, we tried it out, and then I had the good fortune uh, to get spotted by Kurt Squire. I don't. Uh, do you know Kurt Squire? I, know. I don't. No. Yeah. Okay. So uh, he does a uh, did a lot of work, and still does a lot of work on games and learning from the educational side. Um, his, his PhD is in, in education rather than history or a field like that. Um, anyways, invited me to go to a conference and speak about it, and I started to say, hey this actually seems to be something that people value and want, and want to hear about. Um, so I've been experimenting um, from there. I went to, I started with demos, Rome Total War in the classroom and having my kids critique whether, whether the demo battle was accurate or not. Uh, I played around with Civ City Rome and did similar things. Um, moved to civilization and, 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 and that's sort of, I, I still sort of work with that. So that's kind of the, the approach um, till now. And then, of course, I wrote Gaming the Past because I felt like I'd developed enough guidelines that, you know, hopefully I could be helpful 
to teachers who want to figure out how to use these things. Definitely. I mean, I think that book is incredibly useful. It just so happens that I just went through a uh, comprehensive exam. I was one of the examiners uh, for a master's student here at Louisiana Tech, and she's training uh, to be a secondary history instructor uh, in Louisiana. And so one of the books that she had to read for a comprehensive exam was Gaming the Past. Uh, and uh, we did also in my um, history uh, video game class, which she was a part of, uh, we had uh, a lesson plan project and uh, we lose, we used a lot of uh, resources uh, from your book uh, in order to kind of develop that project. Uh, so it's an incredibly useful book and it's one that I think has a lot of utility, not just for secondary instructors, but also for college instructors as well. Well, I really appreciate that. It's, you know, I guess you said, right, 2011. Um, and it's, really hard to gauge the impact of things like that because a lot of us, right, as history teachers are in our own little bubbles uh, doing our thing. So it, it, it's nice to hear that it's being helpful. Thanks. Yeah. So what about Path of Honors? Uh, this is something that you've been writing about on your personal blog, Gaming the Past. And I was wondering, you know, if you could kind of talk a little bit more about what your experience with Twine has been. Sure. Well, I Simulation design was always a really big thing for me in the classroom. I think it's a phenomenally good historical exercise for a student to research a topic, you know, really try and pull out what the, what the chief strands are of the topic and then try and design it into some sort of game system. Um, and so I had design courses where we used to do it with, you know, pen and paper and cardboard. Um, but I, I, I wanted to find a computer tool. Um, and. The problem with video, the problem with video game design tools, so actual visual video games, is there's too much of an overhead. Uh, it still requires too much energy for a student that's in a history class to learn the things they need to learn to make a good visual video game. Um, I think, um, and and so what I started playing around with, though, I became introduced to uh, Inform. Um, Parser-based games, if if uh, you're old enough, were really a big thing in the 70s and the 80s. And the basic idea is right, you have text describing a room you're in or something like that and then you're given a parser prompt and you type in a verb and a noun um so go west or pick up sword or or, or whatever and and then you see sort of updated in the text um what's happened as a result of your commands and there's this tool called inform 7 that made it really easy to program those relatively speaking um it used a programming language that was basically english so if you wanted to create you know a castle and this is all text there's no visuals here you could say you know the castle is a room the description of a castle is and you put your description there and then if the player um uh was playing the game they could type into their prompt look at castle um and then they'd see the description that you typed um Mm. So it, it was really pretty cool. But yeah. what I found, though, is um, parser-based games, uh, text games, are based on puzzles. And so you spend a lot of time trying to guess things that you're supposed to type in and what's going to work and things like that. And it made it very challenging to develop anything like a historical narrative or clear historical choices or things like that. Um, but I liked the idea of them designing and then I got turned on to Twine. I believe it was one of my students who pointed it out. And when I first looked at it, I thought, oh, no, this is silly. This is just choose your own adventures. You know, why, why would you do this? And I, I was sort of in the mindset of the more sort of systems-based design of Inform. Um, but I gave up Inform because ultimately um, the overhead was still too much. It just took too much uh, um, programming knowledge to be able to do really complicated things. So I started playing with Twine uh, maybe about two years ago and got really excited with the, the low overhead that you can make something, right? You can make a basic Twine game and all you have to do is type. I mean, there's one line of code, right, to make links, but, yeah. but that's virtually nothing. And so the focus could be on writing and design and not on coding skills. And that's a great match if you're talking about history class. Yeah. So, John, do you have any experience with Inform? 
a, a tiny bit, a tiny bit in the sense that the first time I wanted to teach the class that I do teach here at Center, um, the good CTL people here were great in helping me kind of research software packages and everything. And Inform came up and it was it was really exciting, um, but in large part because I have my students for such a short period of time in the particular term I'm currently teaching the class. It's this three-week intensive winter term, I, I backed off a lot for, for basically the reasons that Jeremiah brought up. Um, and I kind of, not that I thought they were intractable exactly, but I didn't want to take them on in such a short period of time. So I'm kind of not surprised, but it's also, it's helpful to hear from someone who went into more, actually went into it and tried to use it, that, that those concerns are there, you know? And I had tried different things. I had tried templates in Inform where I would basically write out the code and then they just inserted their content. But mm-hmm. yeah, at, at the end of the day, right? I mean, I mean, at the high school level, one of the things we're, we're, we're really uh, interested in is teaching coding skills in a variety of places. So learning to code is not a bad thing. It's just that at the end of the day, if the course you're teaching is history and you're supposed to be assessing right. them on their abilities and thinking skills in history, spending lots of time to code is, is, is a deal breaker. Yeah. And the, John and I were talking about this earlier. We were thinking about expanding our courses to use different development tools. But uh, at the end of the day, it's kind of that pressure. It's uh, This is a history class. It's not a coding class. It's not a computer science class. It's it's not even a graphic design class. So you know, if you're really trying to use history to present historical ideas, it really has to be the focus. And you've got to pick a tool that can get you to that point faster because you're going to you're going to waste time or not necessarily waste time but you're going to spend a lot of time on development even when you're using something as simple as twine uh but you know if you're trying to use something a little bit more challenging like say inform or you know maybe even if you're daring you might try to use unity that time that overhead could be much much more time much more greater yeah the, the first the, oh sorry oh, yeah. uh, the, the first time i taught the class i had two groups out of the six use unity um, one with better results than the other, and another group used stencil. Um, and, you know, they do... So Center is not a huge college at all. We don't have a massive computer science program anyway. And it's exactly the same issue Jeremiah brings up of... It's not that it's bad to do coding or do design. It's great, but if it, it's not what my class is trying to do. The other challenge was you have a group of five or six people, and the person who can code kind of naturally takes on the mantle of coding. Absolutely. And that's even worse, right? Because then that person's actually receiving an inferior experience to everybody else in the class. Um, and not through lack of effort or lack of desire, just you know they're doing what they can to try and react to what I've asked them to do. And so it's really challenging. That's where the two things I've had success with are RPG Maker, of all things, where you get these early 90s um, RPG-style things, um, but definitely Twine, which, of course, is what we're talking to Jeremiah about. And it turns out that when the students are let loose on Twine, they can do stuff I didn't... I had not previously thought students were going to be able to do, which has been great, which has been cool. I, I think there's also... There's sort of a... a um a philosophical consideration as well. And, and this sort of gets into um, Path of Honors in a second, I think. Um, um, video games, right, beyond beyond the skill levels required in designing them. If you've got, if you've got a video game, this happens a little bit within form, but not so much. But video games, right, are, are visual. But duh, we, we all understand that, right? But what that means is if you're going to have a historical simulation, you've got to have everything in the game somehow have some kind of accurate reference to history if you were truly trying to make it as a historian as opposed to a game designer historian mm-hmm. um and and that's usually too much right to be able to control every <laughs> single element i think about this um i wrote a book called swords and cinema on a uh, 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 general reader book just for fun um on video uh, excuse me film depictions of ancient battle and it occurred to me that like when you're setting up a, a film scene right if you're going to be judged historically authentic, you've got to have everything in that scene authentic, right? The sandals have to be right, whatever they're wearing, you know, the haircuts. The There's so many details that you would have to account for if you're going to have somebody judge and say, you know what, that's, that's really historically authentic. But with Twine, right, just like with any kind of writing, you select what you talk about. And if you don't talk about it, it's not there for somebody can say you left it out. But nobody can say you sort of didn't treat that detail successfully. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so th- that's anyways um, wh- why I started. So, so thinking about that, 
And then thinking about the ease of use with Twine, um, I played with this with my students and I've developed it now, so it's a semester-long project for my ninth graders. But then the next step for me was, was to say, wow, um, finally maybe I've found something that I can design a historical game in. Um, I'm, I'm a classic uh, start something and never finish it game designer. I've designed lots <laughs> of board games, card games, you know, digital games, and none are complete and none work very well. You're you're in a safe space, Jeremy. <laughs> I was going to say. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm opening up, and of course, Path of Honors isn't finished either. So maybe, uh, maybe it didn't help that I that I shifted. But what I started to think about is, with Twine, you can start to make, uh, be, because you can write whatever you want, you can start to make an interactive te- text that would present a historical argument in a way that would be more acceptable to historians who are usually, you know, overly concerned and obsessed with text being the way to represent things. Mm-hmm. So, so what I thought is, okay, let's, let's do this. I'll design a, I'll, I'll design a game, um, and it'll hopefully have two purposes. One, I have a 12th grade elective on the Roman Republic that I love to teach, and so I thought maybe if I could make something that would be useful for them so they could learn something about the Romans. Um, and two, could I show that somebody could make a historical argument um, uh, using uh, Twine? Now, I should, I should note here, credit where credit's due. I cannot remember the name of the person. I'll have to find it for you later. But there, there was a person who did a master's defense at, I believe it was Ohio State University, excuse me, on, I believe it was trying to buy, uh, buy property in the Chicago area. Uh, and how your experience would be different depending on whether you were black or white. Um, and they designed this as a master's thesis, complete with footnotes and and in citations and everything. But it's a set of um, uh, choices. It, it's an interactive text with choices. So I think mm. if that didn't give me the idea, uh, this person deserves props. I'll find I'll find it for you uh, in a second when I'm done talking, and, and we can we can credit her. I think. Sure. I think what I could do is put it in the show notes uh, for the podcast, and then that way, uh, whoever that is, whoever that clever person is, can get that credit. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, so, what I wanted to see then is could I could I present an argument historically that would be acceptable to not everybody? You know, there's going to be curmudgeons who aren't going to stand for it, um, but but would be presentable, defensible, reasonable to historians who, who prefer text. Um, so the basic idea is I take this, uh, this Roman aristocrat uh, as a youth and I sort of go up uh, through the stages of military service and offer offices and things like that and give the player a series of choices where they try and sort of maximize their, their prestige and get as many offices as possible. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds great. And, you know, I love the example that that sets because... You know, one of the things that I was hoping to promote in my class was the idea that students could do this and that this is something that historians should do in the future, which is look for new ways to present their research, to present their work. And, you know, I think that that sets a great example. And I think it's something that, you know, I it's one of the main reasons why I want to keep teaching the class is that even though the... The development tools are rather rudimentary. Uh, you know, Twine is is cheap uh, and uh, it's effective, but at the same time, it's it's not the type of game you would probably try to sell or promote in that way. Right. Uh, but at the same time, I think that this is a worthwhile skill for upcoming historians or even people who are in other industries to try to to think about using digital tools uh, to tell kind of uh, their stories or the story of the past. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. And there's, as I'm, as I'm sure you two know, there's a lot of work going on for how how the past can be represented in different ways, right? How we can visualize it now with the tools we have. And um, there's also, I, I um, you, you had a great podcast with Adam Chapman, Chapman that I enjoyed listening to. Um, his book does a great job talking about games being proper history, right? Um, yeah. That that they they transform the past into a, a, a new medium, which is basically what what history is. Um, so yeah, I think I think this twine design fits in very well with where many historians are trying to uh, go. 
Yeah. So, John, I wanted to kind of ask you about your preparation for your upcoming class in January. I mean, is there anything that you kind of took away from your previous experiences with the course that you maybe want to change or maybe build upon or just kind of get your sense of this topic? Well, you know, the big um, the big plus point for me, the first two times I've taught it, you know, um, Jeremiah rightly points out the issue of historians getting beyond text. I think that I think that historians have gotten much better at um, saying we want to get beyond text, but we're not necessarily getting past it any more than we are. Um, And there's a lot to be said for, um, you know, essay writing, of course, from, from the student perspective. But my very pleasant experience the first two years was that getting the students to get into the library and locate not just the secondary source material, but the primary source material, it, it was effortless uh, compared to yes. other teaching experiences. And so that has been great. And so, you know, well, we had a baby at the end of May, so I haven't done as much planning as I would have liked over the summer. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but my, my starting point is definitely, okay, well, I know I can't lose that. Um, and the big thing I'm kind of juggling with at the moment, and it's really kind of fortuitous for me personally that um, Jeremiah's in the ch- conversation today, is kind of a software decision because it is something we've been thinking about um, in previous classes and leave things open. And I'm very serious considering we're just going to go with Twine. Um, a little bit for reasons Jeremiah's already kind of raised, you guys have raised, um, in the sense that um, I don't want to create dilemmas for people. Um, but also beyond that, on a more kind of elevated um, pedagogical approach, if we're all kind of coming at it the same way, I know from experience there's no reason we're not going to have six very, very different projects despite using the same software platform. Mm-hmm. How, can I, how can that be more than a decision I've made, hey, guys, this is the software you're all using? How does it become a much more integral uh, part of how I'm planning the course? You know, so I'm kind of cheating, Bob, because I'm not really answering your question because the answer is, well, I'm still kind of working on it. But, but, but what I'm also thinking is, how do I elevate the Twine decision? Let's say I say, right, guys, everyone's using Twine. I'd like that decision to be more than, you know, um, something I say on the first day. Like, how does that influence how the class goes from there now that I know what everyone's going to do? Do you know what I mean? That's, that's kind of where my mind is right now. I guess my, my suggestion would be kind of pitching how this medium does things that maybe other other mediums don't uh, medium don't mm-hmm. um so so i've been trying to think about it and twine so actually i've, I've got a i've got a remote talk i'm going to do for uh the value project at, at the university of leiden at least i've always pronounced it leiden uh and and it's on twine uh and and i was going through and thinking about the difference between parser based uh, text and, and choice-based text, as you call something like Twine, because the choices tend to be listed for you, right? You got a description of what's going on, and, and then you see the choices. Um, Twine seems to... I'm sure it can do different things, but when I do it for history, it seems to me to lend itself to focusing on individual agents and their decision making. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, we can get into all sorts of fa- fascinating conversations, no doubt, about whether individual agents do much with their decision making and, you know, contingency versus counterfactual and everything like that. But if you're interested in an agent making decisions, Twine is a superior way to do that. So I, I don't know if that helps you because you might be more interested in, you know, uh, uh, sort of grander social processes, but it's a start. It de- No, it definitely helps because it's, it's funny because I hadn't quite drawn the connection out I guess well obviously you've used Twine teaching more than I have Um, but yeah I've seen the same thing in my limited examples you know like a GI in Vietnam you know which which the students ended up using they made him an African American GI and that made it a different kind of a game and all these things Um, you know Castro and the Cuban Revolution and becomes this you know one of the main figures and so it's kind of intriguing because it pushed them towards you know, what is a cast of characters in a work of fiction versus a cast of characters in something that's representing historical fact, you know? Yeah. Um, and lots of good things that come out of that. Um, but it's helpful to hear you phrase it that way because I, I think that there'd be nothing wrong... Again, this is one of the reasons I've pioneered this, or pi- that sounds grandiose, you know what I mean, that I pioneered for myself uh, in the shorter term, the three-week term that we have, is so that I can I can make little snap judgments like that. So I think... It's destined to be in the long term, in the medium term future. But so, for example, I could do January as a the question of agency and history and, and use video games to do it. So, yeah, that'd be interesting. You know, like I say, like I really appreciated that because 
it'd be nice for a software decision, all kinds of decisions, of course, to actually influence, right, what is this course going to do, as opposed to kind of shoehorning a larger idea or a, or, a, or, a, yeah. or a vaguer idea into what I have, you know? Yeah, and this is one of the topics that really interests me when thinking about history of video games is how do game mechanics, how do the mechanics of the development software, how do the mechanics of the genre actually end up determining the history that's presented? And it, it's funny that you bring up uh, this issue of agency, John, and, you know, kind of uh, single agents, uh, as Jeremiah put it. Uh, this was something that came up in my class where uh, all of the games were twine games. And uh, I pointed out to the students uh, during the demo playthrough that all of them were basically doing kind of socialist histories, right? They were hmm. all histories from below. They were all right. kind of individuals uh, who were not in positions of power. Uh, but instead were at most a middle manager, you know, at worst uh, were, you know, immigrant laborers in Colorado at the turn of the century. And, you know, they they kind of viewed this as kind of their own personal historical interests. But now I look at it now and I say, well, maybe it's a, maybe it's a result of the development tool that they were using. Maybe it's a result of Twine instead. I mean, if I can give a, a counterexample and we throw it back to Jeremiah, I mean, in talking about graphical stuff, the other one I've used is RPG Maker, right? Which is basically, you know, plug your content in. And it's been fun. So one of the ones I liked my first year was they built an entire, they built a totalitarian state. Um, and and I, I gave them a lot of leeway, so it wasn't technically anywhere, but it was very obviously influenced by Stalinist Russia and to a certain extent, um, late 20th century North Korea. Um, but it is striking that, you know, that was kind of the kind of thing that people are doing in RPG Maker, whereas Twine, as you say, is kind of giving the, you know, the bottom-up stuff, the stuff that we're, in theory, dragging them through in the larger classes. But in the games, they just immediately go to it, certainly if they use Twine. I've, I've been thinking about it, and this is, this is one of the reasons I'm so glad to talk to you two. I've been spending all my time thinking about this and just wanting somebody who actually wanted to talk about it. I, I mean, you know, I walk <laughs> down the street and ask people, would you like to talk about Twine in history? But they go their own way. <laughs> It's, no, not, it's not no. a good way to make friends. I, not. <laughs> um, I, I, um, I think there's two, and, and again, I, I feel like the development tool shapes this, is like John was saying, but I'm not sure. It may be that I'm just sort of limited in my one way and somebody will come along and, and fix it, and that's fine. Um, but it seems to me that there's two basic twine histories one can write. Um, and I know this because I've been helping some people do, do their own work, um, on this, and my students as well, of course. Um, you've got a historically general character. Um, so what I mean by that is somebody who's not a specific person that we can document lived, um, but rather a kind of person, a person of a certain group or something. Like you were saying, Colorado min minor. So that would be a category of person if you want to be sort of reductionist. Um, and so those twines basically function like historical novels, uh, right? Where, I didn't know this, I, I was playing with the idea once of writing a historical novel, and I'm an ancient historian, which so that means we know nothing about the figures we've studied. Um, and, and so making up grand swaths of stuff is just kind of part of the game. It's, it's not quite that bad. But, um, yeah. Oh, I'm so jealous. Oh, no. As a <laughs> You have very different problems than, than, than we do. Um, so, I, I never understood why these historical novels were about sort of every person characters, um, because I wanted to write a historical novel about one of the chief figures. But now, now I understand once I got out of my ancient mindset, right, is that with, with the characters we know enough about, we know what they did. And to say that they had choice implies counterfactual narratives that you might not want to support, right? So, and, and so you start to get into this chain of events, right? What if... Oh, I'm making this up. This is a bad example, right? William the Conqueror, right? What if he didn't invade England in 1066? And, and, you know, what would happen as a result? And that gets really complicated. So what the historical fiction novelists do, right, is the same thing that the Twine generalists do, is they pick a character and talk about the character's historical circumstances and the historically valid choices that they made and what the effects are of those. And I think that lends itself to social processes and systems and, and understanding them. Um, but but you can also do a very specific one. You, you you can go into one that will be straight counterfactual almost from the start and say, we're going to take, uh, you know, let us suppose that uh, President Clinton got elected. 
um, and that would be Hillary Clinton. Let us suppose that she got elected. What would be what would be happen next then for the direction of the United States? And obviously, she didn't get elected, so you'd start going into very specific counterfactuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that I stressed to the students, and I borrowed a line from uh, Sid Meier, uh, the developer of Civilization, is that. Uh, a good game is a series of interesting choices. And so in order to do well on the assignment, you know, creating this twine game, you not only had to, to get the history right, but you had to make it interesting. And, and I think what's useful with twine in that regard is that all you're doing is making interesting decisions. So it almost gets to the very core of what we expect, and I think, when we're looking at historical games and it's kind of a model that you see playing out uh, particularly during games like uh, civilization but also i think in these kind of smaller scale twine games you know you think back to Oregon trail for instance which is also uh, kind of set in the same mold of making interesting decisions making that compelling so that the player not only gets history you know from these students but also can get a an enjoyable product at the end, something they might come back to. And a, mm-hmm. and a really accessible one too, right? I mean, the, not not only is Twine easier to design, but it, it takes a fair amount of skill, right, to, to parse what's going on in the game of Civilization. Um, whereas, right, at Twine, you have the choices in front of you and you just need to click. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's easier to share, as Bob just did on the website, for example, all these little little way, you know, um, it's easy to put something together that'll work on almost anything. Um, it's funny how much my classes, um, you know, the group projects have kind of been these very, you know, Dr. Harney, this is our topic, this is how we're hoping to approach it, etc., etc., etc. And then the gr- the large group discussions where we talk about video games and history become a lot of how do we talk about history the way that we do? And kind of one of the sub-questions I have for the students is, why are the Assassin's Creed games arguably having more of a an obvious impact on some people's historical consumption than than more recent literature on the Renaissance or, or whatever, right? Um, and how do we embrace it? You know, <laughs> and how do you guys, the students I'm talking about, how how do you guys become a generation of people who help create, you know, good good contributions that are still in that popular public sphere, whatever mm-hmm. we want to call it, you know? And it's a huge, it's a huge issue to wrap your head around. I think, for especially for us as trained historians, we're so used to doing things in a very specific way. I think that, yeah, I completely agree. I, I, I think that on some level, we, we forget that all history educates on some level. Now, it may not educate you towards a, a conclusion that we'd like you to have, right? But if you think about it, even I don't, I, I don't think people think enough about this. That when a scholar is writing a book, right? They're trying to inform people's opinions about the evidence. That that is education. It doesn't. Have, it's not necessarily hierarchical, right? It's not that you're in a in a teacher student role, but you are educating them. And ed, if you do a video game, right, that represents the past in certain ways, then you are. If it influences somebody, it, it educates. So yeah, it, it's it's important to think about how, you know, to be to be on the good side, if you will, as you were saying there, of, of representing the past. Mm. Let me let me ask you both a question. Uh, it's kind of bothering me as I'm prepping this uh, new iteration of Play the Past, and that's how much time to spend on kind of teaching the history side of it, and how much time to spend on developing the game. Because I think, you know, for my class, I left the history, whatever history the students wanted to choose to develop the game, I left that choice up to them. But at the same time there was a nagging sense that they were going off to study these subjects without kind of my guiding hand, which would be really common with a, a research class where you'd have one particular time period that you were focusing on. But because I wanted to to make the project compelling for them, kind of have them dive into it head first and do all the extra work that comes along with not just you know researching the past, but also developing a game to go along with it, I felt like, well, maybe maybe I wasn't doing enough credit to the history. So I'm just wondering if, if y'all have had similar problems with that or if you have a solution uh, for that kind of issue. Great question. Um, I, I think <laughs> that, you know, it's all, it, it, it's all how do we spend the time, right? Is it, is it coding? Is it, is it, is yeah. it researching the yeah. history? Uh, I, at this point, have found that, at least on the design side, if I'm doing the twine design, 
I want my students to have more um, excitement about the topic. Um, so, so I let them choose and I let them research it. Um, I, I uh, at this point, I'm pretty precise. I actually have them deal with an actual historical figure um, that existed because it's an ancient world history course, and they say we have these gaps where we really can imagine. Um, I might do it differently and have it be more of the of the you're a person in such and such circumstances. But generally speaking, for me, if they can find a topic that interests them, research it using credible sources and synthesize it into a, a somewhat a, some sort of legitimate uh, uh, decision making game, that's really good. Um, you know, I mean, but that's a general survey course. I suppose it depends on what the content obligations are. Yeah, my experience, I mean, I would have similar, a similar answer to Jeremiah. Um, what I found in the group work, you know, I, I'm actually quite old-fashioned when it comes to teaching, and group work isn't something that mm. comes to me naturally. Um, but it's worked well with the video game class, and last January I did my podcast class. Um, and it was an interesting difference because um, last January was a class specifically about East Asian folklore, which ended up largely being um, Japanese with some Chinese folklore thrown in. And so I kind of accidentally had some kind of a basic knowledge. And so, Bob, I suppose I kind of was giving them some kind of a, a central thread then. Um, but in both the podcast and the video game classes, I found that um, I have found, and I think you have found too, Bob, that I can really get a lot done by just asking fairly you know, simple but well-intentioned questions. Do you know what I mean? Okay, guys. So you know, um, so what are you know? What are the readings telling you? You know, are they all telling you the same thing? Like you know, little things like that. And um, I've been very surprised how well that works. But ultimately, I'd agree with Jeremiah um, that it's how you choose to use the time. This is where format gets really interesting as well because um, I keep mentioning this. You know, it's a three-week class. I have them every day for three hours. I'm the only person they have that little mini term. It creates a completely different kind of a culture from a long semester um and then so i've kind of pushed towards this notion of the group work anyway but if i want to do a long semester version i have the same exact same question you have finally just to add something as well i wonder to myself i gave we have um a couple of options for the gen ed survey here at center and the one that i teach is development of the modern world it's basically global history from the dawn of time until 1850 Oh, really easy. Yeah, 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 you know, simple. Uh, (laughs) And um, I gave them The Curious Expedition by Maschinen Mensch as an assignment, Mm -hmm. as a kind of as a reading, Um, because we were talking a lot in this, the kind of final third of the class about the the, um, emergence of modern imperialism and not just the structures of imperialism, well, not just the, the economic structures, but the cultural structures of imperialism. And that was kind of a, that was an interesting, that was the, my best experience so far, or that's been the best chance I had to really do what you're talking about, Bob, which is to say, we have talked about this stuff so much, but, but they weren't creating a game. They were kind of analyzing the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, but I, but that gave me, gave me kind of confidence. And so I guess I wonder, I like the way my short-term class works, but Maybe if I, when I eventually switch to the long term, in fact, rather than do a video game long term class, I'll just take one of my existing Asia classes and say, right, I'm going to take out the 15 page paper and I'm going to put in a video game. Um, yeah. And then, then we'd see how it goes. But, but broadly, I agree wholly with Jeremiah. You make your decision on the time. And part of it, especially if you're lucky enough to have a good group of students, which I'm very happy to say I have had on both occasions and I'm confident I'll have on the third occasion, you can also make those, those decisions on the fly a little bit. You know, yeah. within the realms of being a responsible instructor, <laughs> you know, you can make yourself yeah. the fly a little bit. Yeah, I think, you know, my class was a mixture of the game development. The, the final project was a twine game. But then also the first half of the class was really focused on analyzing uh, different historical games, different historical game genres. And I thought that was really useful because a lot of the students played historical games already, but some of them didn't. And so they really needed kind of a background in things like Oregon Trail, Civilization, seeing what type of historical games were out there. And you could see that that had a big influence on the final products uh, that they came up with, uh, particularly the games that are kind of you know coming out now from the indie scene, which are basically glorified twine games. I'm thinking about something in particular like right, right. Uh, 
80 days. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and that game really was a big help for them to kind of see not just the potentials of the genre, but then also to kind of think, well, you know, how can I make this better mm-hmm. with the history that I'm doing, the research that I'm doing? And, uh, you know, I, I was lucky, you know, like John said, to have really, really great students. And you know, what I loved about this project and what I think, you know, like John, you were talking about maybe adapting it for a non-video games class. I'm kind of thinking the same thing because, you know, my experience with this seminar in video games, uh, unlike, you know, research seminars for other uh, historical classes, this one is the first one where everybody in the class met the milestones Mm -hmm. for the final project. So they all turned in their prospectus all time. They all had their draft ready on time. They all had a demo of their game ready on time. And if you could say that about a course, (laughs) it's a huge success because, you know, I don't know what your experience is, John or Jeremiah, but when I'm doing a regular research paper based class, it's maybe half the class has a prospectus ready, or maybe half the class has done a draft. And maybe half the class, uh, or maybe 75% of the class, three quarters, is, has finished the final project on time. And this class was that didn't have that problem whatsoever. You know, that's where I think the novelty of the video games is something to really lean into. Because, unfortunately, at the college level, students feel, I know what an essay is which makes it more likely to write it the day before, um, which makes it less likely to hand in a prospectus. Um, and the video game, and with the podcast class, for example, I put the podcasts on iTunes and told them this ahead of time, you know, and I I grossly exaggerated my Twitter footprint, you know, and all these ways to interpret them. <laughs> um, but uh, it scares them. And I don't mean this sounds negative, but it's not meant to sound. It kind of, it, it, or, let's not say scares. It really focuses them on, oh God, this has to be done. Um, but then in the meantime, it's great. And, and I, I'm constantly stunned at getting, I get students in this class who have never played a video game, which is, I didn't think I'd get yeah. anybody like that. It's like, oh, that's great. You're welcome. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Let's, let's do well, it. I think, you know? Yeah, yeah I, I think that's certainly been my experience is, is that people rise to the occasion uh, for researching and designing for these games. Um, and, um, and, and I too, I posted, as you both know, um, I posted uh, the best examples from my students anonymously up on my site of their Twine games, and I did that for exactly that reason, uh, on the incentive side, right, to say, if it's really good, I said, you know, I'm not going to put it up there unless it's really good, because it's being linked to my site, and I'm saying right. this is this is a good effort, now, you know, from, from, a, from a 14-year-old student. Um, and then, of course, I, I abbreviate their names, because uh, I've learned that the internet is a cruel, precious place. Uh, <laughs> And we will not, and we will, and, and we will not subject people to that who who are not ready yet. Um, so, um, but the other question I was going to ask, I'm not sure if I missed it. Were, were you two talking about the possibility of taking the game project and putting it in your non-game classes? Yes. Yeah, that was something I highly John recommend. Said. That. Yeah. That's that's kind of been the big thing mm-hmm. for me. Is okay. I mean, I have a. I have a course that's just on serious games and global issues. That's a fourth quarter elective, but uh, my my game work is um, mostly within content classes. Um, and with Twine, I think it is perfect because you can do that research paper. Um, and they're writing, right? I mean, and we want our kids to be better writers. Um, so so that's an important part of it as well. But yeah, I think I think a Twine project can be a great. Uh, 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 project within within a regular history course, as can a game analysis. The biggest problem with game analyses is uh, you, you, you kind of need games that are easily encapsulated. I've been trying to crack the civilization nut now for twelve years, but it's big. But you know, a more focused game might be better. But Twine's great for the classroom for a regular classroom. Yeah, Jeremiah, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your setup. Uh, at your high school, I mean, what kind of equipment do you have? Um, are you teaching this class, this video game class, in a, a computer science lab, or do you have the students with iPads or laptops? Uh, you know, how much contact hour uh, time do you get with them each week? I mean, what what's the kind of setup? Absolutely. Well, so level? first first thing, full disclosure, I I you know, the country day experience is not your average high school kids experience. So I'm really fortunate to have a, a number of resources. Um, that not every teacher has. Um, and I think one of the things I tried to do in gaming in the past and some of my other work is really try and help teachers see how they can 
adapt if they don't have as many technological resources. So if we happen to have um, a high school teacher uh, listening to us at some point, knock on my metal desk, um, you know, send me, send me an email and I'll do everything I can to extrapolate for, you know, your setup. Um, but, but that being said, uh, Cincinnati Country Day is a one-to-one -one laptop school. Um, so all of, all of my uh, uh, classes, most of my uh, students are ninth graders. All of my ninth graders have their own. Uh, they're actually tablet PCs. We're running Surface Pros now. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm wow. so incredibly fortunate. <laughs> no question about it. Um, and so we don't have to do computer labs. Uh, I don't have to book extra time. Um, really what I have to figure out is um, what time do I want to take out of our regular classes to be able to do these things. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it is, it is a very fortunate position to be in. I won't say it's not, but it's not all the land of milk and honey. We can't run most video, uh, you know, we can't run current video games or things like that. Uh, you know, we can run Civ 4 pretty well, so that's good. Um, but so basically for me, um, the, the bigger logistical question is figuring out how much class time do I let them work? Uh, how much homework time do I have them spend on this? Um, I really struggle with group design versus individual design. Uh, I, I began with group design the first year. Um, and I think what happened is kind of like uh, what uh, John was saying, where if you have the programmers in your group, right, some people just sort of naturally take over. Um, so this time, or this last year when I went through, I had uh, students individually design it, and then they had each other play them so they could serve as sort of a brainstorming and check on that. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, we're in a place where we have laptops, and so um, I, don't have to, I don't have to do uh, scheduling uh, issues like that. So. Yeah, no, no. That's I, fantastic. Jeremiah? That's, yeah, that's ideal. I, I love where I am. No question about it. It's a fantastic school. Jeremiah, I just wanted to ask, what kind of, when the students are doing Twine um, as a singular project for themselves, um, what kind of time investment do they need over the course of the term then? Is that like a term length, length kind of um, project for yeah, them? Yeah, or okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like has that been a difference from the uh, group? Or? I, had, I didn't do the group last year. I just did the term one. And then so effectively, uh, it's I did it in two quarters. Um, I think it was second. No, it might have been third and fourth. I can't remember. Um, but what I, what I, what I did with it is I, I decided that if I was going to do this, right, it, it's that time commitment again. If I was going to do this, I was going to make sure that it was as high quality and rigorous a history experience as I could get within the twine. You know, it's not. I say this in gaming the past, you don't tell people that you're going to do this because it's fun, because fun is relative and not everybody thinks it's going to be fun. You got to <laughs> think that there's some, some serious historical and educational reasons to do it. So what I did is have them actually do um, their research paper for the quarter on the twine. And so I gave, I was able to give them a paper grade on their twine research paper, which they then had to revise. And then I was able to give them a paper grade on the twine itself um, and have and have checkups in between on their evidence, their bibliographies, and, and things like that. So that's how I did it, is, is really made sure that there was a lot of good historical research skills being developed and worked on there, and then the twine was going to be the product where that all hopefully manifested itself. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think a really big consideration for teaching these types of classes is, you know, what kind of technological ability your students have, but then also what kind of tech they have access to. And I know with students at Louisiana Tech, uh, you know, almost all of them had PCs, uh, uh, many of them had iPads, but uh, it was very rare. I think only one or two students in the class had consoles. So I had to be really strategic about what games mm. to recommend to analyze. And then also, uh, you know, having some sort of allowance for the fact that maybe they couldn't get yeah. those games running uh, on their PC or their iPad. So, you know, a part of the class uh, for certain games, I could think of uh, Valiant Hearts in particular. We had a couple of students uh, who couldn't get it running on their iPad. So I just suggested to go and watch uh, Let's Play videos. Uh, so they could analyze that. Uh, but uh, with the development tools, everybody yeah. was able to use Twine. Uh, 
so I think that that's one of the the great things uh, you know to recommend Twine is that uh, it runs on any machine and the product of a Twine uh, development uh, is an HTML file which you can upload anywhere you can send to anybody. Right. Uh, so it's it's really I think in that regard uh, very it's user friendly but it's also friendly to you know kind of budget conscious mm -hmm. uh, students and classes. It's something I it's something I think about a lot actually, Bob. It's a great point because, you know, center center college, you know, we're a small liberal arts college. We have a different student base to other colleges I've worked for in terms of people's backgrounds and stuff. And you know, lots of colleges this size are working very hard to to make it easier for people from different backgrounds to get in and everything else. Um, but one of the things that Mash and Mensch were great in the spring for my my survey class was I just reached out to them and said hi I thought you think this was cool and they said we do think it's cool you know how many students do you have and they sent me link they sent me codes for they have a browser version of their game um, oh, which, was, wow. which was super nice of them and, and, and I actually picked it to be honest because I knew it was affordable on Steam and I knew that it worked across various platforms and everything else and, and because it is it's tough you know it, it's tough to get the reading list right you know so yeah, it's 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 hard because you know you have this dream reading list, you know, like guys go and play the first two hours of Half Life Two, and we'll talk about urban spaces behind the Iron Curtain <laughs> in the nineteen eighties, you know, <laughs> and you know, uh, I, I'd love to, but it's it's tough. And another thing about Curious Expedition I liked was that you didn't have to be. There was nothing. There was no real. You can play that game and not be a very good True. quote unquote video game player to get something out of yes. it. Yes. Which was a huge, yes. which was another reason. So I, I'm teaching that exact same class again this fall. I might do Curious Expedition again, but I'd like to mix it up. I, I think maybe 80 days, Bob. I might go with that. We'll have to see. I, I highly recommend it. Okay. It was, I think, probably the best uh, received game in our class. Cool. And, uh, you know, of course, it's cheap. It's uh, There's uh, several different versions out there. Um, and... You know, I think you were right to point out the fact that, you know, it's not just overhead with regards to the development tools you use and also the games you decide to use, but also, you know, the language of playing games is it's really like learning a whole another language. You know, the time it takes to learn how to play civilization mm -hmm. if you've never played before or the time it takes to learn how to control your player in Assassin's Creed it makes it very difficult to recommend those games, not just from a price standpoint, but also from a time investment standpoint. A lot of video game fans will say to me, oh, you should use Crusader Kings 2. It's like, I would love to use that, but how, how could I possibly... That game yeah. is way too complicated <laughs> to expect 30, 30, different, 30 different adults of various background and levels yeah. of interest, you know? Go and play Crusader Kings 2 for 10 hours. Well, and it's I just think, not that easy. You know, what, when we talk about accessibility here... I mean that that's an, that's sort of another way. I'm sort of re really just reinforcing what what you guys are saying, but um, I try really hard not to talk about gamers. Use the word gamers. Have anything that even remotely reflects that there's some idea that there is a person who is you know more naturally into this than others, um, because it's just not helpful. It alienates the people who might be interested, um, but. Um, uh, you know, are, are, are nervous because they don't self-identify that way. And I think that becomes really important when it's not a course about games, right? Um, uh, to say, look, games are a popular medium. They're, they're everywhere, right? We, whatever the quotations, right? They're making more than the movie industry and all that stuff, right? They're here, they're presenting the world. And so as, as, a, as a young modern history student, it's something you, you should engage with. And, and hopefully you'll learn some stuff along the way. But, but not get into, oh, gamers, you're going to love this. And sorry, sorry about the <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today's show. Thank you both for joining me. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of History Respawned, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash history respond. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>